This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. With each blog post for our thought for the day, my strategy is to take a chapter of the Bible in context to be the focal point for the thought. Generally, the rest of the content itself is a result of scripture reading, which sparks an old memory of something that I've been taught that completely disagrees with that scripture when read in context. I will never forget when Seek Ye the Truth first started, and the thought for the day was almost entirely scripture reading, straight from the books in the New Testament, but it was in the English Standard Version of the Bible. Having been spoon-fed false teaching from a tape-only church, I was very unfamiliar with the scriptures. I found it very comforting to read the Bible in the easy-to-understand ESV version rather than the cryptic King James version that in many places did not match today's understanding of the language. It was in one of those posts that a, a song leader from the cult church in Macon, Georgia, condemned me for my thought for the day. He blasted me for the post, and he says, You don't even know the scriptures. Even the footnotes in your Bible condemn you to be a liar. Now, I found this interesting, because it was the Word of God directly from the Bible, and it sent me down a path of research on the King James Version and specifically the footnotes that he was referring to. If the footnotes in his Bible condemned the words coming straight out of the ESV, there had to be something wrong. Going back to the original Greek texts to compare the chapter in the ESV, I found it to be very close to the original translation, and at least it was as close as our language allowed. The KJV was also very close, but was difficult to understand in the Old English. And I thought to myself, our language has progressed and it's changed over time. Shouldn't the translation of our Bible do the same so that we can understand the original meaning of God's Word? In studying, I found that many legalistic, fundamentalist churches, the ones that add their own fundamentals to their religious beliefs, they all use the KJV. 
And it reminds me of the days when the Catholic Church had the power over the Bible, and the common people were not allowed to read and understand God's Word. The interpretation of scriptures had to go through the priests. And Paul said the Bible is of no private interpretation, meaning that God speaks to us and we do not need a priest to tell us what the Word says. And yes, William Branham even twisted that one out of context to imply that he was the only one who could rightly interpret the Scriptures. But in my studies, I came across something that was very interesting. Those words from the song leader kept ringing in my ears. Even the footnotes in your Bible condemn you to be a liar. Those footnotes evidently condemned the Bible, because the topic was almost word for word out of the writings. I realize a connection between those footnotes and a large portion of William Branham's divine revelations. The Bible that this song leader held was packaged and sold by Voice of God Recordings, the headquarters of the cult church of William Branham. I myself had one of these Bibles, as did my wife and my children, and they were supposed to be the same version that Branham taught from with the addition, obviously, of some pictures of idolatry stitched in between the leather bindings, the footnotes came from Cyrus Schofield, hence the name the Schofield Bible. The story of, of Cyrus Schofield is very similar sounding to those who have studied William Branham's many lies about his early life. Schofield was also a man running from his past and he seems to have escaped it in the name of religion. Sound familiar? He was a Confederate soldier, one who lied about his age to enter the war. But after a few months of fighting, he cowardly tried to escape. In a letter to the Confederate Secretary of War, he claimed that he had been a Michigan citizen and requested the exemption from his duties. That request was denied. In 1873, Schofield was recommended to President Grant for U.S. District Attorney for the Federal Judicial District of Kansas. Even though he was an ex-Confederate soldier and had written papers that established him as being such, Schofield committed perjury by solemnly swearing that he had never bore arms against the United States. As a DA, Schofield did not last very long. Something else consumed his time, and he made not only a poor district attorney, but a very poor father of four. At one point in time, he disappeared from his family for five years, and one acquaintance is recorded saying, Schofield had a bad reputation, and he just skedaddled out of town. Others recall his addiction to alcohol and the problems associated with being a drunkard. When he was around, Schofield was accepting bribes. He was failing to pay back banknotes. He was borrowing money that he would never repay, and he was causing problems for the family who supported him. His sisters would often co-sign his unpaid notes, and once they started refusing to sign, Schofield started forging people's names. Court case 46333 and case 44326 both involved Schofield forging the names on the banknotes. When Schofield finally reappeared, he continued a more brazen life as a forger, and he and another set up a blackmail scheme against the railroad system 
which landed him in prison for about six months. <laughs> he even went so far as to write his wife and ask her to invest $1,300 of her mother's life savings into a mortgage under a fictitious name, <coughs> Charles Best. But within months of emerging from prison, <clears throat> and after swindling his mother-in-law's money, Schofield was ordained a minister. Worse, he separated from his wife to start his ministry. He claimed that she had a temper and had became a zealous Catholic. A reporter from the Patriot met his wife, and she was in shock at his sudden change. He wrote, That little lady denies as absurd such stories. There were never any domestic clouds in their homes. They always lived harmoniously. As to her religion, she was no more zealous than any other church member. She attended the service on the Sabbath and tried to live as becomes a Christian woman and a mother. It was the first time she ever heard the objection raised by him. And as to supporting herself and children, he had done nothing. Once in a great while, say every few months, he sends the children about $5, never more. But a year later, Schofield married a fresh new member. She'd only been going for three months. A member of his small congregation in his church in Dallas. It is believed that Schofield became acquainted with a party that was directing his steps. His overnight success and popularity so soon after a life of crime, when combined with an unrepentant lifestyle, suggests more to the story. Especially after landing back in jail for another six months, not long after establishing his own congregation. It's very easy to back that theory when you study his private life. In 1901, Schofield was admitted to membership in the Lotus Club in New York City. This is an exclusive club founded by, the, by prominent New Yorkers such as Whitelaw Reed of the New York Tribune and Samuel Uttermeyer, the notorious criminal lawyer and well-known leader in the Zionist movement. Untermeyer was on the club's literary committee when Schofield's application was presented, and Schofield kept his club membership until his death. And this was not a place that Christians would go to. But Schofield's shady past is not so damaging to the church as his false teachings in the Bible promoted by the cult. Schofield's crimes against humanity were judged by men but his twisted scriptures will be judged by God. Sadly, William Branham copied many of these false teachings and claimed them for his own. And like Branham copying Schofield, Schofield's doctrines were not new. Schofield gleamed a great deal of his content from John Darby, founder of a cult called the Brethrenism. Darby is considered the father of dispensationalism and seemed to have influenced many cult churches in many ways. Schofield took Darby's dispensational teaching, and he separated <clears throat> seven divisions, or dispensations, periods of time in the Bible. Though these periods of time do exist, and many others in the Zionist movement have copied them, they are extra-biblical. Schofield's seven dispensations include the Age of Innocence, from creation to the fall, 
the age of conscience from fall to the flood, human government from the flood to Abraham, the promise, Abraham, to the law, the age of the law from Sinai to the Christ, the age of grace from the death of Christ to the judgments, and the age of the kingdom. But there are two huge problems with these dispensations. First, God's promise to Abraham was for Abraham and his seed after him and had no end. It did not end when the Mosaic law was given. And in fact, it included the time afterwards in the wilderness specifically within the promise. In fact, the part that Schofield missed is that there are seven covenants in the Bible, not dispensations. And some covenants are everlasting, while some are momentary. Genesis 15 says this, Then the Lord said unto Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Now notice, this is after Mosaic laws is given to Moses. And it's in the Abrahamic covenant. The scripture says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, but you will be buried in a good old age. And notice this, And they will come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. So this goes far beyond the Mosaic law. But the worst heresy, and one that Branham chose to implement, was the dispensation of grace. Like the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant of grace has no end. Paul calls it everlasting and eternal covenant, with no end. For the promise is to you and your children, and so many as far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And you see, it is because of these dispensations, this theology, that many cults turn away from other Christians, and they sever the body of Christ. These dispensations include the heresy that there are hidden mysteries and that they are in between the lines of the Bible, a heresy that William Branham also copied. Listen to these two statements in comparison, one from the Apostle Paul and one from William Branham. The Apostle Paul says this, Our letters have been very straightforward, and there is nothing, I repeat, and there is nothing in between the lines, and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us. 2 Corinthians. But Branham says this, Along came Abraham. Watch between the lines now, you readers. This is not written right in the word, but you have to read it in between. It's hid from the eyes of the wise and prudent. It's striking when you pay attention to the title of that sermon by William Branham. It's called Demonology, and it's the doctrine of demons. He would often call it a love letter, instructing the readers to read in between the lines. He would say, Oh, brother, the Bible is just like a love letter. You have to read in between the lines to see what it means. God said he hid it from the wise and prudent and revealed it to babes such as would learn. Frankly, this is the reason that no two cult churches, none, can agree with each other. Neither one of them can guess accurately the mysteries in between the lines. And sadly, 
They've ignored what is written on the pages. It's also very odd when you think of what Branham is saying. What was written in between the lines of his Bible? Schofield. <coughs> Another heretical doctrine that Schofield got from Darby, one that Branham continued, is the elect bride rapture. And it's ironic when you think about it. Branham can often be quoted saying, Trinity is never in the Bible. Show me one instance of the word Trinity in the Bible. Even when William Branham himself teaches Trinitarians on some sermons, and the Bible often speaks of the triune nature, the Trinity of God. It says these three are one. But the word rapture is not only not in the Bible, there's very little or no support for it. And there's absolutely no support for a little bride rapture. The theology that Branham stole from Schofield, who stole from Darby? It was Darby's conflict with the Catholic Church that instigated this theology, and it's relatively new. <clears throat> Matthew 13, Jesus Christ gives many examples of the kingdom of heaven. Each parable describes the coming kingdom, the exact opposite of what Darby and Schofield and Branham claim. Take the parable of the weeds. Scriptures say this, He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said unto him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Now let's pause here. <laughs> Under the false teaching created by Darby, spread by Schofield, and regurgitated by William Branham, the master would say, yes. Let's gather up the chosen few plants and let the rest of the plants die with the weeds. Let them burn. Especially those plants that have set next to a weed. They are diseased. They've taken the mark of the beast. But no, let's see what Jesus says. Jesus, the scriptures say, <coughs> but he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. And bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The little bride rapture theology can only vaguely be supported if you take a few scriptures here and there and take them out of context like Darby does. But the words of Jesus Christ are very plain and are very easy to understand. And we must, we must take the words of Jesus Christ over false teachers. Schofield, he tried to limit the deity of Jesus Christ just as George Lambson did, the only other theologian that William Branham praised. In Introduction to the Four Gospels, Schofield says this. <clears throat> he
He says, all Gospels record Christ's offer of himself as king. Now, this may sound simple and not, a pro not problematic, but you have to continue what, what Schofield says. And Christ was the coming king. <clears throat> he was already king. Paul said, <clears throat> Paul said that he was the creator, the God from the beginning. <clears throat> you see, Schofield, he, is, he did not fully understand the gospel. And he thought that Christ was a rejected failure. <clears throat> In his notes of Matthew 4.17, he declares that Christ should have been establishing the Davidic covenant, the Davidic kingdom, instead of fulfilling the old covenant, which he came to do. When Christ appeared to the Jewish people, this is Schofield speaking. When Christ appeared to the Jewish people, the next thing in the order of revelation, as it then stood, should have been the setting up of the Davidic kingdom. Now, this theology, taken from Darby, is anti-Israel. Schofield's notes declare Israel to be a failure. <clears throat> and he seems to think that God rejected them because they rejected Christ. His notes on Matthew 11, Schofield says this, John the Baptist was, a, was as great morally as any man born of a woman. But as to the kingdom, he announced it at hand. The kingdom did not then come, but was rejected. Listen to what he just said. This is Schofield, and he says, The kingdom was rejected. And John was martyred, and the king presently crucified. The least in the kingdom, when it is set up in glory, will be in the fullness and the power and the glory. It is not heaven which is in question. Listen to this. He writes, It is not heaven which is in question, but Messiah's kingdom. Because they re rejected Christ, Schofield starts to claim that Israel was not offered the kingdom of heaven. God took it away from them. Later in his notes on Matthew 11, Schofield says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, The new message of Jesus, the rejected king, now turns from the rejecting nation, not a kingdom, but rest and service to such in the nation as are conscious of need. He says, It is a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. A pivotal point. That scripture, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden light. That scripture is one of my favorites, and it has given songwriters beautiful words for their songs. Come unto me is one of my all-time favorites. To think that a false teacher and a con man would twist the words of Jesus is unthinkable. Another false teaching that Branham got from Schofield notes is Deuteronomy 30. But it is important to see that the nation Israel has never as yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. Historically, that is inaccurate. If you study the history of Israel, you'll find that Schofield 
was just speaking out of a hat. But Branham took this one and ran with it, even falsely claiming that Israel became a nation the very hour that he got his commission. And yes, Branham forgot to check the dates before he said that, and got not only the wrong date, but this was his second commission. There are many lists of Schofield's errors, and many heresies that you can find online if you search for them. Quite frankly, the easiest and best is to simply read the scriptures and compare them to his erroneous notes. And when you do, and you're reading Schofield notes, you'll quickly find many divine revelations. But Schofield was part of a much, much bigger scheme. Darby was involved. And we find that many other men that William Branham followed, including Charles Taze Russell, were involved. One might ask why so many cult leaders follow the same extra-biblical teachings. And the answer is simple. The answer is given by Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In Luke 17, Jesus' description of the coming kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us why these false teachers will rise. Their instructions do not come from men, but they are the doctrine of demons. Luke 17 says this, And he said unto the apostle, The days are coming when you, are, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day, not the prophet. But the first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Now that scripture, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. William Branham took this verse and he took one from another book, combining them to teach his little bride rapture that he copied from Schofield and Darby. And he added the words, wherein eight souls were saved, to change the meaning of that scripture. He added to the word of God. But Jesus is not speaking to the number of the elect, or even of the body of Christ here. He is talking about those who are focusing on a little bride rapture, and those that will be caught unaware. He continues, They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage <clears throat> until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from the heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He continues, On that day the one, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding in the mill. <coughs> one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? Now these are the people taken. 
And they asked Jesus, where are they taken? This is the part people miss because Branham has snipped out pieces from this paragraph. Read the whole thing. It's in your Bible. They're taken and they asked Jesus, where did they go? And Jesus said, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Notice the end of this chapter. Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Branham, in his twisted little bride rapture, used the King James Version word, the eagles. But then he lied to the masses about what eagles eat. When eagles are really birds of prey, and then he tricked people into thinking that it is a good thing to eat rotting corpses. But in this story, those taken, the disciples ask him, where are they taken? And he says, look at the corpses. The moral of the story is this. There are many men with many different motives. Some try, and they, they try sincerely, and they fall into error. Some, like William Branham, come telling lies from the very beginning and clearly have devious motives. Others, like Schofield, and possibly Branham, were guided by men in shadows. Only those who are intently studying the Word of God sincerely will be walking in truth. It is likely for that reason that Branham took Darby's doctrine against theologians, except, of course, the theologians Schofield and Lamza, and if his cult were to find out that others knew their Bible better than the prophet, he would quickly have no following. And heaven forbid that somebody try to learn more about their Bibles by actually going to school. The moral of the story is do not listen to a single person when it comes to scriptural truth. Not me, not William Branham, not any of the cult leaders that William Branham idolized, or even Billy Graham. Read it for yourself. You'll find that after you untangle the false doctrines of devious men, that it's really not that difficult to read and understand. It's a lot like a huge diamond that you've dropped into the mud. You can show it to anybody you want, telling them that it is a diamond. But until you wipe the mud off, those who know what a diamond looks like will just simply walk away. Don't be the person that has left the mud of these false teachers like William Branham and Schofield. Cover your Bible until you forget the words. Read the book. Seek the truth. It's in the Bible.